0: This message was recorded at Fillmore Baptist Church in Princeton, Louisiana. Our goal is to faithfully preach the Word of God for the salvation of sinners, the strengthening of believers, and the glory of God. Please visit our website at www.fillmorebaptist.org and listen for more information at the conclusion of this message.
1: 15. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there, and a great multitude followed him, and he healed them all. Yet he warned them not to make him known, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench till he send forth justice to the victory. And in his name Gentiles were trust. Then one one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and he healed him, so that the blind and the mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitude was amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? Let's
0: pray. Lord, again, we come before Your throne of grace. Lord, looking to You for um, enablement here. Lord, as as we consider the passage that we have before us today, that we just heard, Lord, uh, may it have an effect on us and sink deep into our being, and not, not just fall on the physical ear, but Lord, make Your Word take root, we pray. For our growth, may it result in a better, more accurate view of You and even of ourselves to the end that we would desire to honor and glorify You in all things, exalt You. I pray for Your enablement as I speak this morning for the power of Your Spirit. And Lord, that You would enable all of us to hear again through the power of Your Spirit so that our lives are changed by Your truth and so that You are glorified. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Give me seating. <clears throat> Every um, every sermon, if uh, if if done right, and of course you know they're not, but <laughs> at least mine aren't. But but every sermon, if done right, basically says, uh, "Look to Jesus, look at Jesus," and we're going to kind of do that a little more explicitly this morning because of the passage, verse eighteen. Behold, my servant. That's what the uh, the mouth. That's what the voice of the Lord is saying through His mouthpiece, Isaiah, in Isaiah 42, and then here in Matthew uh, 12, 18, Behold, which just means look. Behold. Look. Look. See. Pay attention to. Look at my servant. And it's talking about Jesus. Look at Jesus. That's what Matthew's saying all the way through here. All the way through His Gospel. That's what all the all of the other Gospel accounts are saying. It's what all of the New Testament is saying. It's what all of the Old Testament is saying and has been saying for hundreds of years. Look at Jesus. Behold, My servant. That is the servant of the Lord. The servant of, of God, the Father, Jehovah. Behold, My servant, My chosen. Look at Him. And from the beginning of this Gospel, Matthew has been making the case... That this Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus born of Mary in Bethlehem, the so-called Son of David or Son of Joseph rather, um, is the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah, the Anointed One, the King, promised King of Israel. Now that's that's the case that Matthew has been making. He is saying, this is Him. This is the One. Look at Him and you will see the fulfillment of God's promises. Look at Christ and look nowhere else. In Him, the promise, promises of God are fulfilled. The promise of Messiah, the promise of the Messianic Kingdom, promise of salvation for God's people... All fulfilled in Christ. Well, it's the same as the case this morning. Matthew is still making that case. Now, I mentioned before, the section that we're going through right now, specifically chapters 11 through 13, um, focus in a lot on the opposition that Jesus met among the Jews. But Matthew stays the course. He He still is using that. And then Jesus' responds to that, and Jesus works in the midst of that to prove that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. So, in other words, here, here is Jesus doing the will of God, um, introducing, uh, initiating the kingdom of God. And in the midst of doing the will of God perfectly, He is meeting opposition from unbelievers. And Matthew is saying... He's still the One. He's he's the Messiah. He's the Anointed One. Though He didn't meet the expectations of the people in every case, in many cases, yet He is the servant of God. He is doing God's will perfectly. He didn't fit their presuppositions. They had a different idea of the Messiah, a different idea of the Kingdom, they thought uh, in, in a more materialistic manner. And Jesus is, is not, he, he's not fitting that mold, but He is fulfilling Scripture. He is fulfilling God's will. So when you come to verse 15, it starts out where David started reading earlier. But when Jesus knew it, knew what? Well, He knew that they were plotting... Kill him, verse 14. Um, they had just had the discourse concerning the Sabbath. Jesus, and his disciples were accused of breaking the Sabbath, his disciples because they plucked grain on the Sabbath day. And now the Pharisees are upset with Jesus because he healed a man on the Sabbath day. And Jesus has openly, well, first of all, openly healed a man. And then openly declared to them, Yes, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath, and rebuked them for their lack of love and lack of mercy. And instead of being humbled by that and broken by that, they became all all the more enraged by it. And so now they are plotting verse fourteen how they might destroy him he goes about doing good and they want to destroy him so verse 15 says he he knew that when jesus knew it he withdrew from there great multitudes followed him and he healed them all now there's there's a couple of of uh bookmarks as it were here on the section that we just uh Uh, shelf shelf ends, book ends, on the section that we just read. Verse 15. What do we find Jesus doing? Well, He's still healing. He's still doing good. He has proclaimed to the, uh, the Pharisees it's good, it's legal to do good on the Sabbath. This is what His ministry is all about, doing good all of the time. He goes about healing, preaching the good news, casting out demons, ministering to people with the truth. So that's what we find Him doing in verse 15. In spite of the fact that they are now seeking to destroy Him, He continues this ministry of mercy that they hate so much. So I'm going to come back to that in a moment. Behold Him, that is, behold My servant, whom I have chosen... Behold His mercy. And then the other in is the account of the demon-possessed man being healed in verse 22. Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and he healed him so that the blind and mute both spake and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed. Uh, literally, they were outside of themselves. Or we would say, you know, Beside themselves, they were amazed and said, could this be the son of David? So, Jesus is rebuked for doing good, and now they seek to destroy him for doing good. And yet, verse 15, he goes on doing good and uh, extending mercy. And then Matthew Points to uh, the prophecy concerning Jesus in Isaiah 42 and verses 17 through 21. And then he comes out of that and, and gives us another account of the very same thing. In other words, Jesus continues to display mercy, grace, do good, minister to people in a, in a real way. It's not just an outward show of religion. He's changing. Hearts, changing lives, even changing bodies. <laughs> and you know, people's state as they go from demon possessed to free, or lame to healed, and of course lost spiritually to found. Behold his mercy. So verse fifteen says, He he withdraws because of the opposition, he leaves Now, there's an appearance here, and even in the words of of Isaiah that we'll see in a moment, and even in the words um, of Jesus Himself back in chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, if you take them wrongly, I mean, there's an appearance, there could be a a surface appearance of, of weakness, so, we, we want to be real careful not to confuse the mercy of the Lord and the meekness of the Lord with weakness. He's, he's not weak. That's not what he's declaring about himself. And again, chapter 11, 28-30, that's not what Isaiah was saying about him in chapter 42, as well as other chapters. It's not what Matthew is pointing out here. He is pointing out that He's meek and that He's merciful. And He wants us to see that. He wants us to see what the Pharisees were blind to. That this is what the kingdom of God is about. This is how the kingdom manifests in the world. God revealing Himself as merciful to sinners. verse 15, he withdraws from the opposition because it's not his time yet to suffer and die. He's not avoiding suffering. He's postponing it because it's not time yet. When the time comes, he he makes no effort to avoid it. He embraces it. So he withdraws here. Because it's not, it's not time yet. And that's just another way, too, of saying that all of these things are in his control. It's not, it's not time for him to be uh, offered up yet, suffer and die. And so it's not going to happen yet. He, he manages to avoid that. He has more, um, more ministry to do at this point. And that's what he's doing. He withdrew from there and great multitudes followed him. There's a little more detail on that uh, in, uh, in Mark's account they literally they came from as far away as a hundred miles away Adumea they came to, to uh, be ministered to by Jesus to be healed and they followed him and he healed them all. He healed them all what a what a word of encouragement for those who come to Jesus. <laughs> He healed them all because none is worthy. None is worthy of, of His of his grace, of His mercy. I think we're going to have to switch mics here, uh, Michael, because this one's going dead. Uh, so, none of us deserve His mercy. None of them deserve His mercy. But they come because they are desperate they come because they're in need and here's what they find healing deliverance salvation he healed them all because he came to extend mercy he came to to literally live out put on display the mercy of god to repentant sinners, those who would come trusting in him. He healed them all. Verse 16. Yet he warned them not to make him known. Now, that again is is, is just a way of saying it's it's not time yet. He's, He's healing people. And for these people who are being saved, delivered, healed, uh, it, it may not, or at least the Pharisees may deny it, other unbelievers may deny it. But to these people who are who are receiving from Jesus, who are being delivered and healed. They are they are coming to understand this is the Messiah. This is him. This is the anointed one. This is the one God has promised. This is one we have waited for for centuries. Now, what would you do with that in their shoes? You want to go spread the word, Right. And Jesus is telling them, don't do that. It's interesting, isn't it? Don't do that. But again, it's just because it's not time. Let me, let me say this clearly. That restriction is not on us. <laughs> in, in fact, quite the opposite. It's like Jesus said before when we talked about uh, what you hear in secret. Proclaim it from the rooftops. Spread the news. Make his fame known. Tell the world. Messiah has come. Say like John the Baptist, look, behold, the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Point others to Christ. Point others to Christ and keep looking at him yourself. Shout it loud as they say, Jesus is the Messiah. That's what Matthew is doing in this account. He, he's proclaiming. This is Him. This is the Messiah. This is the anointed one. But at this particular time, it's not time yet for all of that to be made known. And so Jesus heals them, and then He strictly warns them not to make Him known. Uh, I think the explanation behind that, just real quick, is, is... uh, his history tells us that anticipation, the anticipation for Messiah was really high at this point in history. Uh, we're even told in Scripture uh, that they wanted to come and make him a king. Uh, so, again, they had the wrong idea of what the kingdom of God would look like and how Messiah would rule. So their whole concept was wrong. And so Jesus is saying, uh, you know, Keep it down. Keep a lid on it. Uh, Don't don't make me known. He doesn't want the mob to come and make him a king. He's going to do things according to God's plan, according to God's way. But Matthew goes on to say, again, using an Old Testament prophecy, goes on to give us another reason. For uh, Jesus attitude here that you might call low key. Verse 17 or 16 and 17, he warned them to make him known, not to make him known that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah, the prophet. Now, now this is the uh, typical formula that Matthew uses again and again and again when he goes to show that Jesus has fulfilled Old Testament prophecy, uh, that it might be. Known Or that it might be fulfilled. You have that in verse 17. And in this particular instance, he points to Isaiah 42. It's it's a loose quote, uh, but uh, coming from Isaiah 42. And uh, it's the longest quote, and also parts of 49. But it's the longest quote uh, that we have in Matthew from the Old Testament. What Matthew is doing is saying, What Jesus is doing here is the fulfillment of what Isaiah was talking about there. So hundreds of years before Jesus is born in Bethlehem, Isaiah delivers this prophecy concerning the Messiah, the Anointed One. This is one of uh, what is commonly called... Uh, the four servant songs in the book of Isaiah, this is this is one of them. Um, of course, uh, you have also the account of the suffering servant, for example, in Isaiah 52 and 53. And, and sometimes as you read through there, it's, it's difficult to make out exactly who the who the servant is. Sometimes it's talking about the nation of Israel. Sometimes it's talking about Messiah to come, which will be the ultimate uh, and final ruler the heir to the throne of David. And that's, that's the case here. That's what Matthew is saying. Jesus is the fulfillment of the servant that Isaiah spoke about in Isaiah 42. Now, here's, here's the quote. Verse 18. And, and again, it's, it's a loose quote, but roughly it's, it's uh, Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4. Verse 18, Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel, nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. Smoking flax, he will not quench till he sends forth justice to victory, and in his name, Gentiles will trust. Behold, my servant, beloved, chosen, Christ. Came as a servant, his father's servant. In fact, in Philippians uh, two, Paul says he took on the form of a servant. That is, he became a human being. He he came uh, in a uh, um, a role subservient to God the Father, to do his father's will. So he's he's the ultimate. You know, we talk about being servants of God and serving God. Meaning by that that we want to be obedient to God. We want to do God's will. Jesus is the ultimate servant. He he never once stepped outside of the will of God. He did God's will perfectly. And so God, again, hundreds of years before uh, Jesus comes on the scene as a man. The Lord declares, behold, look, look at him. Look at him. My servant. Whom I have chosen or ordained, in whom my soul is well pleased. He's saying, look, look at my servant in whom I am well pleased. And by the way, do those words sound familiar? I mean, think of the baptism of Christ, the transfiguration of Christ. And there's, there's a voice from heaven. This is my beloved son. In whom, I am well, in whom I am well pleased. Hear Him. God the Father is pleased with Jesus. Now, if you're a Christian today, if you've been born again by the power of God, God is pleased with you. But it's not because of you. God is pleased with me, but it's not because of me. It's because we're in Christ. And it's because his righteousness has been put to our account. And it's because God is pleased with him. Uh, So there's really only one. When when you look at at a person in and of himself, there's. There's really only one of whom it can be said, behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, whom in whom my soul is well pleased. Jesus is the only one. But again, rejoice. We, we can talk about being pleasing to God, God being pleased with us, but, it, but it's because the righteousness of Christ is put to our account. It's not because of anything within us. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice on the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. Smoking flax he will not quench. What's he describing there? He's he's talking about gentleness, meekness. I will put my spirit upon him. That is, the the Lord Jehovah was saying through the prophet Isaiah, I'm going to put my spirit. He's going to be anointed with my spirit. That's why he's called the anointed one. Hebrew for anointed is Messiah. He's the Messiah. The Greek word for anointed is Christos, Christ, where we get our word Christ. He's the Christ, and Matthew makes that clear uh, from the start. Now, like I say, this is the point of his uh, of his gospel. Uh, Matthew argues in such a way that you can tell he's he's targeting Jews. He's uh, heard, in fact, I heard a Jewish believer say one time that this is the most Jewish book in all of the New Testament. <laughs> Because the way it's written, and, and, and that's his target audience, where John, for example, uh, and Luke. Luke is a Gentile, and, and, and you can tell by the way he writes, he's, he's, he has Gentiles in mind, primarily. Uh, the same could be said of John. But, but Matthew is targeting you. That's why he keeps going back to the Old Testament, back to the Old Testament. That's why we have that formula repeated. This was done so that it might be fulfilled, you know, thus and so. He's showing that Jesus fulfills all that was promised concerning the Messiah. And he starts out his gospel by saying the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Jesus Christ. And in verse uh, 17, when he sums it up, he says all the this is chapter one, verse 17, All the generations from Abraham to David are fourteen generations. From David unto the captivity in Babylon are fourteen generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are fourteen generations. He's talking about Jesus. The Christ. The anointed one. The Messiah. So Isaiah says, look, behold my servant. I will put my spirit on him. That is He will be anointed, and Matthew is saying, "This is the Christ, the anointed one." It's Jesus. Now, how how will how will that be seen? He says, "Behold, right, behold my servant. I will put my spirit upon him. How how will that be seen? Well, again, think back to what I said a moment ago. Behold his mercy." His meekness. This is one way it will be seen. He's, he's gentle. He, he won't quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. Now, he's just been opposed by the Pharisees, false religious leaders. The religious leaders of the day, hypocrites, and other non-believers... What does he do at that point does he does he take it upon himself to overthrow them and, and set things right at that moment no he responds with gentleness with meekness and he withdraws he will not all to cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. He's, he's not raising up a rebellion, He's not raising up a rebellion against the Roman Empire. He's not raising up a rebellion against the Jewish establishment, the established religion. Now it's true. He speaks the truth and in many places in the Gospels we see where he confronts the Jews openly and points out their error. But does he destroy them at that point, do away with their positions, take over? No. He just goes about his business of winning hearts. Meekly, by doing good, by, by showing mercy, by healing, by delivering, by restoring A smoking flax he will not quench. Just a little, like the wick of a candle, you know, where it's flickering, it's about to go out. That's how gentle he is. He won't even quench that. And that's probably an apt description, by the way, of the hypocritical religion of the Pharisees. Its time is short and it's flickering. And he could snuff it out in a second. But he comes manifesting mercy. He comes extending an invitation to all who will hear. Come unto me. Because he's meek. He says that. He says that in his own words. It reads like this. Chapter 11, verse 28. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest For your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. bruised reed, he will not break. A smoking flax, he will not quench. I I told you last week, chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, kind of the traditional uh, application there, interpretation and, and therefore application, is that he's saying, look, all of you who are burdened down with sin and guilt or oppression. Come to me and I'll give you rest. Well that's that's true enough. I don't want to take anything away from that. But but I think as I as I pointed out last week, given the context, I, I think he's he's talking about being burdened down with the false religion of the Pharisees. Because again, if you if you take all of this in context Uh, They are putting burdens on the people that are hard to bear. What are they doing at this point? They're accusing, wrongly accusing Jesus' disciples of violating the Sabbath. They're putting burdens, heavy loads on the people that, that God didn't intend. And so Jesus is saying to those people who are burdened down with the false religion of their day, who are oppressed, come to me, come to me, come to me, and I will give you rest. (laughs) You're going to find rest for your soul. Not burden for your souls, but rest for your souls. Well, I think you can make a similar application over here. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoking flax he will not quench. Till he sends forth justice to victory. It could be a way of saying... He he could snuff out the Roman oppression. He could snuff out the oppression of the Pharisees. But he doesn't do it at this point. He, he hasn't come to contend in that manner at this point. He's just extending mercy, displaying mercy, mercy. Or you could take it to mean... Uh, a bruised reed, he will not break. A smoking flax, he will not quench. Again, it could be a reference to people who are broken and heavy burdened. And he wants them to know that he's, he's going to be gentle with them in his meekness, in his mercy. Come and I will give you rest. So, look at him. Behold, look at Jesus. Jesus. Behold, my servant, he's meek and lowly, he's gentle. Does, does the gentleness of Jesus, do you, does it draw you, do you find it attractive? <laughs> Pharisees did not. The world never has, doesn't in our day, for the most part, and maybe some exceptions. It's not attractive. It's not a way we like to think of conquering. Certainly, we 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 we, we like pride and arrogance. But Jesus, the true King, the true Lord, comes in gentleness, in meekness, and mercy, saying, Come. Unto me. And this is not at all what the Pharisees had in mind. This is not the way they thought the kingdom ought to come in. And the way the kingdom ought to be established. I want to read you a quote here. And it's, it's, it's rather lengthy, but I, I, I find it really fascinating. Um, and as far as I know, penned by an unbeliever. This, this was written by Napoleon about Jesus. This is what he wrote about Jesus and about the divinity of Christ, the deity of Christ. Like I say, it's rather lengthy, but I think it's worth hearing. Napoleon wrote this. What a conqueror. A conqueror who controls humanity at will. And wins to himself not only one nation, but the whole human race. What a marvel. He attaches to himself the human soul with all its energies. And how? By a miracle which surpasses all others. He claims the love of men, that is to say, the most difficult thing in the world to obtain. That which the wisest men cannot force from his truest friend. That which no father can compel from his children, no wife from her husband, no brother from his brother. The heart. He claims it. He requires it absolutely and undividedly, and he obtains it instantly. Alexander, Caesar, Hannibal, Louis Fourteenth strove in vain to secure this. They conquered the world, yet they had not a single friend, or at all events, they have none anymore. Christ speaks, however, and from that moment, all generations belong to him, and they are joined to him much more closely than by any ties of blood and by a much more intimate, sacred, and powerful communion. He kindles the flame of love, which causes one's self-love to die, and triumphs over every other love. Why would we not recognize in this miracle of love, the eternal word which created the world? The other founders of religion had not the least conception of this mystic love, which forms the essence of Christianity. I have filled multitude. now this isn't this is, again, Napoleon speaking. I have filled multitudes with such passionate devotion that they went to death for me. But God forbid that I should compare the enthusiasm of my soldiers with Christian love. They are as unlike as their causes. In my case, my presence was always necessary. The electric effect of my glance, my voice, my words... To kindle fire in their hearts. And I certainly possess personally the secret of that magic power of taking by storm the sentiments of men. But I was not able to communicate that power to anyone. None of my generals ever learned it from me or found it out. Moreover, I myself do not possess the secret of perpetuating my name and a love for me in their hearts forever. And to work miracles in them without material means. Now that I languish here at St. Helena, chained upon this rock, who fights, who conquers empires for me? Who still even thinks of me? Who interests himself for me in Europe? Who has remained true to me? That is the fate of all great men. It was the fate of Alexander and Caesar as it is my own. We are forgotten. And the names of the mightiest conquerors and most illustrious emperors are soon only the subject of a schoolboy's talks. Our exploits come under the rod of a pedantic schoolmaster who praises or condemns us as he likes. What an abyss exists. Between my profound misery and the eternal reign of Christ, who is preached, loved and worshipped. And live on throughout the entire world. Is this to die? Is it not rather to live eternally? The death of Christ. It is the death of God. And what he's doing there is recognizing the deity of Christ. And he's saying, myself, Caesar, Louis XIV, whoever you want to name. Though they had personality and ability to move men even to fight for them to the death, they had never the ability to win the hearts and true love of men. And soon they're forgotten. That's the way the Pharisees thought as well. Their method was to compel submission. Jesus came showing mercy. Their method was to burden people. Jesus came to liberate. Behold, his. Mercy. And a final note, behold his righteousness and justice. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoking flax he will not quench, till he sends forth justice to victory. Is is the Christ. Is the Christ come to set things right? Yes. <laughs> yes. There's a, there's a day and a time coming. And Matthew is, is showing that Jesus is fulfilling it. This is the beginning of the fulfillment of it. Yes, He comes gently and He comes in meekness. He comes bringing healing and deliverance. He comes like a lamb. This is the paradox we've talked about before, the lamb and the lion. And we sang about it, uh, or Michael uh, sang about it in a song earlier. This contrast, lamb, lion. Well, which, which is Jesus? Is, is he a lamb or is he a lion? Is he meek or is he bold? Is he loving or will he judge? Well, he's come as one upon whom the Spirit of God is, who will declare justice. He declares truth, what is right. He doesn't, he doesn't make any apologies for that. No pretense about that. Is he meek? Yes, he's meek, merciful, loving, but all the while proclaiming truth. I don't know about you. This let me let me go back to his meekness for just a moment. Because this this is one of the attributes that as as a Christian, this is one of the attributes of Christ and of God that I desire the most in terms of godly living. Our Lord was meek. We are to be meek. He was merciful. We are to be merciful. The meek shall inherit the land. The merciful shall obtain mercy. It's one of the things that I admire most in men of God when I see it. And women of God when I see it. Displayed in their lives. It's one of the things that eludes me the most in other words where i am most at fault he was meek now i bring that up again to say this he didn't have to compromise his righteousness or his justice to be meek the two the two meet and agree they're they're married as it were in the person of jesus christ he comes Extending mercy and preaching truth, true righteousness. The two are not at odds. And so often in our day, as he and his, so often in our day, we're accused of being unmerciful, aren't we, if we stand for the truth. You're unloving. You're unmerciful. You're narrow-minded. I heard a preacher friend say one time, I pray to be more narrow-minded. <laughs> <laughs> Probably a good thing to do. Because truth is narrow. But we can be, Now, this is where the world would trip up on this, scripturally, we, we can be narrow-minded and be merciful and loving and meek and gentle. And if you don't believe it, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. He never compromises the truth. He, he withdraws to avoid opposition, but he never, ever apologizes for his speaking the truth. He never, ever compromises the truth in order to win friends or in order to uh, gain approval. So, yes, he's merciful. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoking flax... He will not quench. He says, I am am meek and lowly. Come unto me. You will find rest for your souls. He's merciful. He's meek. But he's also righteous. He's also going to bring about, is bringing about justice. And in the final day, when it's all said and done, we're, we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Every last one of us. And it will be His standard by which we are judged. There's no curve. You can't stand before Him and say, but Lord, I did the best I could. Because that's not good enough. He's come to set things right. So while he's displaying his mercy, his meekness, his gentleness, he's also displaying the righteousness of God. It is seen in him, in his actions. It is heard in his words. And in the end, Paul says in Acts 17, God has appointed a day in which we will all be judged by that man, Jesus, whom he has appointed. He's gentle, meek, lowly, till he sends forth justice to victory. Justice triumphs in the end. Truth triumphs in the end. God and his Christ triumphs in the end. So behold, his righteousness. It's It's not false. It's not phony like that of the Pharisees. It's not hypocritical. It's, it's not a. He didn't come as a whitewashed tomb. It's not all about outward things, you know, to be seen and praised of men. He doesn't seek the praise of men. He seeks the pleasure of God. And in the end, his righteousness will be vindicated. For now, at this time, when these things are happening that that Matthew is talking about, his accusers withstand him to the face with, with no, seems like, no consequence. Today, in our day, people can mock him, refuse to believe in him, and it seems like there's no consequence. There is. I, I won't take the time. I, I mean, immediate. There is, but I won't take the time to go into that right now. But let me let's just say this: There's definitely going to be consequences on the judgment day. He's coming to judge the world. So here's a final note. Don't don't take. His mercy for granted. Don't mistake his meekness for weakness. Yes, he's the lamb. And he's also, as we read earlier in the book of Revelation, the lion of the tribe of Judah. The lamb slain. The lion, king, the real one, (laughs) not the Disney one. Don't take his grace for granted. I mentioned to you before, I think, you know, there was a line, and I still don't, I still don't, I didn't take the trouble to look it up to get it so I could read it to you verbatim, but. There was a line in in, uh, C.S. Lewis's *The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe*, where they're talking about Aslan, who was a lion in in the book. He represents Christ, um, just symbolic of of Jesus. And uh, they're describing to these children how good Aslan is and how loving and gentle. And one of the children says, "Oh, then he's not dangerous." And they say, well, I didn't say that. And so I, I want to drive home the truth today that Jesus is good. He's me. He's, he's the Lamb slain for the sins of His people. He came expressing the love and mercy of God and inviting all who will to come him and know his salvation, the rest that he spoke of. But if your response is, oh, so he's not dangerous. Then my response is. I didn't say that. Because he's a lion and he's a lamb or a lamb and a lion rather. His mercy is real. But there's coming a day in which the day of grace in which we now live will end. So Paul says in Corinthians today, It's the day of salvation. Now I think that's what Matthew is saying here. Jesus has come to fulfill what Isaiah talked about. He is the Christ. And therefore, today is the day of salvation. Right now is the accepted time. And there's also coming and still yet to come. It's yet to come in Matthew's day. It's yet to come in our day. It's coming a day of judgment. And we'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for what we've done, deeds done in the body. And at that point, the day of mercy, the day of grace, is history. Justice comes forth in victory. The righteousness of God and of his Christ is vindicated. The unbelievers are damned to eternal separation from God and eternal torment. And the children of God are welcomed into his presence forever and ever. But today, today is the day of salvation. <laughs> Behold, behold his servant. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Look to him for salvation. He's come offering grace to rebels. So if you're here this morning and you don't know him, if you don't know reconciliation to God through Jesus Christ, then I say again, as Paul did in Corinthians We implore you, be reconciled, be reconciled to God, come to Christ, shake off the yoke by God's grace and know the rest that is only found in Jesus Christ. Look to Him. Do you realize the need for a Savior? Look to Christ. Do you long for relief from the burdens of this life? Whether it be, whether it be the burdens of false religion or just oppression in general that the world brings upon us, the hardships and the tribulations. Do you long for relief from that? There's rest in Jesus. Look to Jesus. Do you long to be free from the burden of your own sinfulness? Do you see the corruption within your own heart? Do you recognize that apart from some help from outside of you, your destination is eternal condemnation? Then look to Jesus. Look to Jesus and find rest. Behold, he says, behold, my servant, my chosen, my beloved. In whom, or on whom, I put my spirit. Look to Him. Trust in Him. The Lamb of God. Who takes away the sin of the world. The Lion of the tribe of Judah. Who rules and reigns. Look to him. Look to him. Would you stand, please? Just a quick reminder before we dismiss that we, again, we meet at 4 o'clock this evening. Hope you can all be here for that. Um, and let me just say as another reminder, too, because I don't say it enough, but um, I'm, I'm never, you know, I don't think anybody here is anybody, anybody here that knows the Lord. I don't think that they're everybody likes to go either go out and eat or go home and eat or whatever it is. But if your heart is burdened, if you need prayer, if you have questions, I don't think anybody here is in so much of a hurry to leave. That they wouldn't take time to pray with you, talk with you. And so I say that because it's true of myself and I know it's true of others here as well. If you're not sure about where you stand with Jesus today, about where you stand with God today, don't don't leave here without... Letting someone know that so that we can come alongside you in prayer. And first and foremost, go to Jesus. Get on your knees, on your face before him and cry out to him for mercy. Be reconciled to God. Come to Christ. Let's pray. This sermon is made available through the ministry of Fillmore Baptist Church in Princeton, Louisiana. Our desire is to faithfully proclaim the message of salvation, which God has provided in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. For more resources and information, please visit our website at www.fillmorebaptist.org. You may use the links there to contact us or write us at Fillmore Baptist Church 6304. Highway 80, Princeton, Louisiana, 71067.